Hello and welcome to Disrupt Podcast. I'm Gabriella Mulligan. And I'm Tom Jackson. Disrupt Podcast is the one-stop shop for African tech startups news and views, bringing you all the latest from the continent's startup ecosystem, plus interviews with special guests. In this episode, we'll hear from Peter Njonjo of Kenyan agritech company Twiga Foods on its latest bumper cash injection, while Emmanuel Okoleji of Nigeria's Seamless HR tells us how his company is disrupting the human resources space. But first, here's all the news from the last two weeks. The last edition of the podcast was stacked with startup acquisition news, most notably the deal that saw Nigerian fintech company Paystack acquired by Stripe. There was further such activity this fortnight, if on a smaller scale, with Kenyan edtech startup Elimu acquired by Co-Creation Hub in a deal that will transform Elimu into the educational arm of the incubator. Elimu has developed revision and literacy platforms that make learning fun and engaging for children both at school and at home, and the platform helps improve learning outcomes for over 500,000 learners each year. It will now become part of Nigerian headquartered CC Hub. The goal of the acquisition is to transform the startup into the digital education platform arm of the company. Elimu will continue to focus on leveraging cutting-edge technology to create interactive and engaging learning content customised to the African context, which will be initiated using the existing apps. The acquisition will enable it to scale these apps beyond Kenya. Also expanding outside of Kenya is the Vilgro Kenya Incubator, an impact investment company which has rebranded as Vilgro Africa and expanded across the continent as it bids to support more e-health startups. Since its inception, Vilgro Kenya has enabled access to healthcare to those at the bottom of the pyramid and successfully supported 21 enterprises with seed funding totaling $1 million. It's now scaling this continent-wide. Three African startups are among the nine companies selected to take part in the F-Lane Accelerator program, which connects startups led by and benefiting women with funding and mentorship. Funded by the Vodafone Institute for Society and Communications, the F-Lane Acceleration Programme aims to sharpen business and impact models and get startups ready for investment. Speaking of investment, a busy couple of weeks across Africa. Lots of activity in North Africa, with Moroccan AI-based drone management platform Atlan Space banking $1.1 million, while there are a number of rounds in Egypt, notably for digital e-commerce marketplace Brandu, delivery logistics marketplace Illa, and smart metering startup Amjad. In Nigeria, rental financing startup Kwaba secured investment, as did HR and payroll tech startup Seamless HR. More from them later in the episode. In Kenya, agritech startup Farmers Pride and mobility platform Data Integrated announced rounds, but as so often in the past, the show was stolen by one company, Twiga Foods. The agritech company secured almost $30 million in debt funding from the IFC to support more than 300 irrigated medium-scale contract farmers to complement its seasonal smallholder farmer supply base. Founded in 2014, Twiga Foods is a business-to-business food distribution company that builds fair and reliable markets for agricultural producers and retailers through transparency, efficiency and technology. The startup is one of the best funded on the continent, securing a $10.3 million Series A funding round in 2017, a further $10 million in November 2018 and over $34 million across two rounds in 2019. I caught up with CEO Peter and John Joe to find out about this latest funding deal and Twiga's plans for the future. So let's start with the big news from last week. You announced you secured a $29 million debt funding from the IFC. Congratulations. Thank you so uh, much. It's a very large number. Can you, can you tell us what you'll be using it for? So this is actually a debt facility 
that uh, is being provided by IFC through a guarantee, which will then be uh, availed through a local bank in Kenya. And the whole idea is uh, to provide farmers with financing, allowing them to capitalize and uh, better set up their farms for commercial production. So very, very excited with this development. Can you tell us a bit more about how um, that will work in practice for you as a company? How are you going to be rolling that out to farmers? So we have farmers that uh, we contract to produce for us. So uh, we're transitioning uh, more from uh, buying from the market to actually contracted produce. And uh, what happens is that uh, we sit down with a farmer, we do a business plan. And on the back of our business plan, we then do an offtake agreement as a Twigger. We take that uh, document to the bank and the farmer gets financing. And this financing is in two bits. They get financing for infrastructure, which means that they can then put in irrigation infrastructure like boreholes and uh, and the irrigation equipment itself. And then there's a second component that's working capital related tied to the crop that they will be growing for us. So essentially it's two part. And I think this solves an issue around farmer financing in the market where many farmers would even get infrastructure financing, but everything will be short term. So now we're able to actually extend it out a little bit, which I think has a very, very uh, significant impact uh, to allowing farmers uh, modernize their farms. And can you tell us from a process point of view, how does it differ to raise debt funding versus when you've had to raise equity funding? Well, with this type of uh, debt funding, because uh, what happens is that it's, uh, it's something that's being availed to the ecosystem rather than the company itself. So, uh, of course, this uh, was, uh, was a long process. And the key thing here is it's not that the bank then puts in the money in an account and says, hey, by the way, this is available for lending. So what happens with the International Finance Corporation is that they always have uh, many types of uh, facilities or structures that they and then avail to local banks that they work with. So in this particular instance, it's a guarantee facility. And out of the $30 million, so IFC guarantees half of it. The other half is then guaranteed by the local bank that will then be providing the financing or they take a risk on the other half. For we as Twigger, we then provide a 10% fast loss on the facility, which means that any of the farmers that we bring on board, if there's a default, then we as Twigger, because we're taking a risk on that farmer, then we cover up to 10% of the facility. So the thing is that, so the three parties, IFC, the local bank and ourselves, all have skin in the game. And the whole idea is to then create this in a way that allows the local farmers who might not have otherwise accessed local funding be able to access uh, capital to uh, to scale up their farms. And all this is to uh, basically uh, uh, contract directly with Twigger. The IFC is obviously a major multinational institution. Um, can you tell us about how you went about creating uh, such a strong relationship with them? How long did it take? What were the hurdles and challenges? Well, IFC has been a partner to Twigger for actually quite a while. And uh, this started with an equity investment, uh, which uh, IFC made about two years ago. And uh, the good thing about uh, having IFC as a player or the types of companies that IFC invests in are companies that would then have a greater impact uh, also on the broader ecosystem and also aligning with some of their strategic priorities. And this was mainly around uh, agriculture and food security. And uh, IFC having invested on the equity side, then we started together trying to explore 
what are the ways in which we can work together to try and create a more enabling ecosystem to support uh, medium-sized farms? Because what's happening in Africa right now is that consumers are spending about 50% of their disposable income on food. Just on comparison purposes, that's what consumers were spending in the U.S. 150 years ago. Today, spending about 10%. A lot of this is due to inefficient food production and a lot of wastage in terms of poor post-harvest handling of produce. So looking at all that, we're then saying, okay, fine. Uh, there's a way that uh, food is being produced today. Is there a better way in which we can start producing food in a more commercial, more efficient way? And that creating that ecosystem required providing financing. And that's where they really came into play. And, um, and then that's how we then started looking at putting together this facility, leveraging uh, local banks. And um, yeah, and, and definitely this is just towards creating that supportive ecosystem for commercial food production in Africa. Over the years, you've taken on regular funding rounds from a range of investors, uh, from the IFC, you've got international VCs, you've even got a family office, if I'm not mistaken. Can you speak a bit about how you went about bringing all those different sources of funding on board and how does it work for you as a company to have so many different types of hats in the ring, so to speak? So I think the first thing is we're solving a fairly complex problem around uh, access to uh, food or also around the fragmentation of retail and how this inefficiency then leads to higher costs of uh, food and grocery in general. So one of the things that's really worked for us is that we've been able to define this uh, problem and the strategy in terms of how we're solving that problem in a very, very simple way that's very, very compelling to a lot of its uh, investors. So that's the first thing that uh, has really worked for us over the years. Uh, and, uh, and, and I've been, uh, I've been part of a journey since co-founding the business six years ago, but I took over as CEO from, uh, from March of last year. So that's the first thing that's really worked out for us. The second thing is also around the governance that we've built in the organization. Um, one of the things that uh, a lot of these investors look at is, yes, you can define the problem that you're trying to solve. Uh, you, can, you can have a strategy that can be discerned quite easily, but do you have the governance to then manage the resources that uh, will then be invested in the business? And that's another thing that we're really, really invested in in terms of the policies that we have internally and the systems and, uh, and just essentially just the governance framework that gives a lot of investors that comfort. Then the third thing is also around management capability. So again, it's looking at, yes, you can have a strategy, you can have a governance, but you have a team that can execute this plan. And uh, are you able then to demonstrate the ability to execute that plan? And the key thing for us as Twigger is that over the years, we've been, uh, and whatever we've committed, we've, uh, we've delivered to a great extent. And that's created a lot of confidence with the investors that we have. And of course, you know, as you have some investors on board, uh, then that also attracts more investors. And I think the key thing for us is with all these investors is being able to coalesce everybody around. How do we then create value for the ecosystem and for the uh, players uh, within the business? And that has kind of kept everybody uh, on the same page uh, going forward. And that's really worked out well for us. Could you touch a bit more on uh, how you keep everybody actually on the same page? Because, uh, 
one could imagine uh, different investors might have different expectations. Maybe they have different ideas for KPIs, what they think the direction you should be going in, um, different levels of being hands-on or not. Can you can you speak a bit about how you bring everybody together and really um, uh, manage everyone's expectations? So I'm very deliberate in terms of uh, how I manage uh, stakeholders within the business. So every month I have a one-on-one with all the major investors outside of the board meetings or outside of uh, the shareholder updates. And that allows us to have a very uh, open uh, conversation about, you know, what their thoughts are in terms of where the business is going. I'm able to explain more about uh, how I see the business today and, uh, and how we can then create value going forward. And having those engagements kind of helps me keep a tab on the pulse of, you know, what's important to certain investors and how do I then step back as a, as a co-founder and the, and the leader of a business today to then uh, ensure that as we move forward, I'm taking into account uh, the different expectations that these investors have. So it comes from being very deliberate in terms of how you manage the different stakeholders in the business. And, uh, and that's essentially how I'm able to keep everybody on the same page. And, and also it then builds confidence, even as we're going and, and raising more capital, then um, everybody feels comfortable that the company is heading in the right direction and it aligns with the vision that they have for their respective funds or, or organizations. Just to look at the broader farming landscape in Africa, you've kind of alluded to already that you're trying to create a more commercial model for agriculture on the continent. And as a place that is typically known for being very smallholder farming based, can you explain why the move to a kind of more medium business level and more commercial model is actually a positive thing? So, so the thing is that when you're, when you're looking at this whole space around uh, agriculture, we were faced with a, with a dichotomy between two paths. One is going the smallholder route. Going the smallholder route way, what it does is you're solving a problem around the sustainability of a smallholder farmer and ability of that farmer to generate an income, right? But it doesn't solve the fact that this small farmer, this smallholder farmer, in most instances, is, uh, is advanced in age. For example, in Kenya, you're talking about uh, the average age of a smallholder farmer being 60. Average age in Kenya is 19. So the key thing is that we're, it's, it's actually a declining base in terms of production. So we're not seeing a lot of recruitment coming into uh, that smallholder farmer space. And when you have that, the key thing then is uh, just leading on to that path, uh, the sustainability of this ecosystem feeding Africa, which is urbanizing at 4.2% annually and where more than half of the population will be living in urban areas in the next few years, uh, then uh, it really starts getting to a bit of a mismatch. So and what, what we then decided to do was to then say, okay, fine, that's one path. The other path is around solving um, food security in the urban areas. If you look at pricing, where pricing is today, food inflation is a double-digit Consumers are spending 50 to 55% of their disposable income on food. And the key thing is that at the rate at which Africa is urbanizing, we will get to a point where we have a food crisis. So the way we looked at the problem was to then say that, okay, fine, you cannot replace a smallholder ecosystem today, but you need to start building 
an ecosystem that can then complement what we have today, which is around medium-sized farms that are more efficient, that have a lower cost of production and using modern agronomy to then start um, filling in the, the, the gap that we have in terms of food pricing. Just to give you an example, today in Kenya, a lot of food now cannot, uh, the, the, the smallholder ecosystem in Kenya cannot meet the requirements of food in Kenya. So now we're seeing a lot of importation of food coming into the country. And what this then leads to is higher pricing. So yes, you have a smallholder ecosystem. And yes, it's a significant part of production today, about 70%. But if we don't start building a commercial ecosystem that's more productive, that can scale faster, then we will have a challenge around feeding the local population. And this is something that's replayed in many countries across the continent. So, Peter, last but not least, can you tell us what are your next plans with Twiga? Where where does the future take you? So, uh, so I think right now we're we're really focused on uh, scaling within uh, Kenya, and uh, we're launching about a new city every month, at least for for the next uh, couple of months, and then from there uh, next year in earnest. Uh, because right now I think um, we're learning how to live with COVID. The air, air, air spaces uh, are opening up a bit. So uh, so from uh, sometime uh, mid next year, we will then start uh, uh, pushing more towards our international expansion within the African continent. And the way we're looking at it is we're looking at all cities across the continent that have the same challenge around uh, urban food security and, and finding solutions in which uh, we can then launch in those markets. So that will be our focus in the in the foreseeable future. And then we see ourselves in the next couple of years being a Pan-African player, uh, solving this problem across multiple cities and multiple geographies. Peter there on the importance of commercialising farming in Africa and the balancing act involved with managing multiple stakeholders. Twiga has established itself as one of the flagship companies within the African tech space, so it will be interesting to see how it fares in this latest stage of its growth. Not many startups out there have raised the kind of funding that Twiga has been able to bring in over the last few years, but investment into the African tech space is increasing and also entering less fashionable areas. The human resources space is not one that commands too much attention, until recently, that is, when the Lagos-based Seamless HR closed a seven-figure VC-led round of funding to unlock its next phase of growth. Founded in 2018 and describing itself as Workday for Emerging Markets, Seamless HR is building an enterprise-grade cloud-based HR platform that helps medium to large-sized companies automate and optimize their entire HR process, from recruitment through to retirement. Tom caught up with CEO Emmanuel to find out more about its plans for the space and what the funding means for the company. Emmanuel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Um, just give us some details about how Seamless HR works and what you've achieved in your relatively short life so far. So Seamless HR is an end-to-end -end HR platform. Um, so it handles everything from recruitment to onboarding to call HR management to payroll all the way to exit. So it's sort of like an 
employee life cycle automation. And we're focused on middle to large size companies. So generally companies from 50 staff to would say 50,000 staff. Uh, our sweet spot is companies between 50 and 500 staff, which is where most well-run companies in Africa fall. Um, and uh, cloud-based, modern software, end-to-end, robust. Um, so, so the corollary would be like a, a work day, for instance, that is focused on Africa first, but ultimately emerging markets. All right, fantastic. So how do you adapt the workday model for Africa? Good question. And, and it's, uh, it's an hybrid, really. So we're a SaaS play. Workday is an, it's a full enterprise cloud SaaS play. We can't be fully enterprise. So we're, we're an hybrid of both enterprise and product-led sort of self-service platform as well. Because the companies in Africa that we straddle, I mean, so Workday will not have companies 50 to 500 staff normally. But this is where the sweet spot is in Africa. Um, and, and, and so we, we're sort of like building, building both the business strategy and the, and the product uh, based on the realities of our local market. And what have you achieved so far in terms of growth and uptake? So decent growth. Um, we, we, we were, so a little bit of history. We, we, we used to, my, my, my co-founder and I have been doing stuff in technology for, for about 15 years. And uh, we used to be a jobs website. Um, that was founded in 2013, and in 2018 we pivoted to HR tech. So, depend, depending on how you're counting, this this would be our second or third year. Um, and in that time, we we have um, well over 100 companies in Nigeria and Ghana. Um, some of those companies have 12,000 staff, 15,000 staff, and some of those companies have 50,000 staff. Um, we we are a profitable company, and and that's growing very fast, um, despite the the COVID pandemic. But, but we're so we're doing decently well um, in Nigeria and Ghana, and now we're setting our eyes on a Pan African sort of expansion. All right, great. Um, you've got some quite serious um, companies amidst your cup, uh, your customer base, like Sterling Bank, Lagos Business School, PwC. I mean, how do you go about marketing to organizations like that and convincing them of the value of a tech offering like yours? So, so and this is very good question. And that's, that's sort of part of how our strategy is built. HR software, the way we look at it, is vitamin to companies less than 50 staff. You know, it's a nice to have. Um, but it's a painkiller for companies with 1,000 staff. If you have 1,000 staff, you really need a software to automate that. Uh, so selling, explaining to them why they need the HR software is not that difficult because they already have that problem and it's a pain that they're looking to, 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 to solve. So, um, and it also goes to the art of the opportunity we see in the continent. So the continent, the players in that category before us would be SAP, Oracle, and Sage. And even in the U.S., SAP, Oracle, and Sage have been disrupted by new newcomers like Workday, um, like namely, you know, like Zenefits, Gusto, you know, chipping away at that market, even in developed economies like the US and Europe. So the same thing is happening in Nigeria, where S- uh, in Africa generally, where SAP and Oracle are vestiges of the past. You know, they are finding it difficult to transition from um, on-premise software to the cloud, 
they're not very user friendly. They were not built in, 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 you know, in 2020 or in the 20th century. So they're really very complex systems that you need a certification to even get your way around them. Whereas modern fast play is user friendly, mobile enabled, solid technology on the cloud. Uh, so it's sort of like a timing thing for us. We're coming at the right time globally when the world is transitioning from the SAP and Oracle's of this world to, to the work days and the benefits of this world. And we are the first to build out a modern cloud-based end-to-end robust enterprise-grade um, HR technology in, in sub-Saharan Africa. So, so it's a good timing for us and convincing people of the need for good technology that actually scratches their itch. Um, it's not, it's not that, that much of a difficult job. And you say you're coming into it at the right time. And I, I guess that, that, that sounds like it's true because you, you don't hear too much about HR tech um, in Africa as a space. I mean, aside from yourselves, I can only think of like a couple of other um, companies that have reached any real scale within this sector um, so far. I mean, sort of how, how big is the market um, for HR tech in Africa? And um, yeah, what kind of advantage, but you know, how important is your first mover advantage? So, yeah, the market is a decent-sized market. Um, you know, I, 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 I can break down sort of like the, the bottoms-up sort of analysis of how we look at it, but um, ballpark for us is that this could be as big as a 2 to $3 billion per annum market um, of both the HR platform itself and the interconnected marketplace that we're able to build around it. Uh, because um, one thing I've not yet mentioned is that we're not just doing just HR tech. So the way we view it is that HR tech is sort of like an operating system that sits on human resources, and you can install multiple connected value-added services to that um, operating system. So it's a marketplace of value, and that joined um, both the platform itself and the marketplace, we think it's a, a th- 2 to $3 billion per annum opportunity in the continent alone. All right, and um, you seem to have investors that agree with the potential of the market. Um, tell us about the funding round you just raised, and, and you, you mentioned your some of your expansion plans. And what what's the money for? Yeah, so so we just raised a, a seed round, pretty decent sized seed round um, from lateral capital and consonance capital led the round, um, Enza capital participated and ingressive capital participated as well. So it's basically Africa focused, uh, VCs and the goal for us. So we spent of course two years sort of achieving product market fit, um, you know, consuming tens of thousands of customer feedback, literally, and building that into a product that actually works for our customers. And so we have a long list of happy customers in Nigeria and a few in Ghana now. And we, we sort of feel that we're at a point where we're ready to, you know, pedal down um, and, and take this across the continent. So this funding is going to help us do that. And, and for, most SaaS, for most software, you know, and more so in enterprise SaaS, product maturity is a marathon. It's not a sprint. You, you just keep getting better, you keep um, solving customer problems, you keep improving your functionality. Um, so this, 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 this round is for those two things. One, to scale across the continent, and two, to also you know, deepen the functionalities of our products um, to customize and fit local markets more, integrate into local marketplaces across the continent. Um, so that, that's what we're doing with this funding. 
do you think the product you've got is easily reproducible um, in other in other markets or will you need to sort of hire local teams and adapt it to local circumstances? Absolutely. I mean, HR is HR everywhere. The only sort of space that you need local um, integrations or customizations will be payroll uh, because payroll legislation differ from country to country, but it basically runs on the same principle. So, uh, but, you know, time off is time off. Um, onboarding is onboarding. Recruitment is recruitment. So it's actually very easy for us to move from country to country. Um, aside from the cash, um what else are these investors bringing to the table for seamless HR? I mean, you've got some fairly high profile um, VC firms in there. I mean, what more are they offering you? A lot of um, strategic um, support. We're very fortunate to have a very strong board of directors um, for quite startup at our stage. So, and, and that's sort of like a platform for us to be able to get a lot from our VCs. So our VCs are actually very, very involved in running the business. Um, both from a board level and and also just from a continuous ongoing advisory level. Um, there's a lot of wealth in SaaS um, strategy and SaaS business amongst our VCs. Um, there's a lot of Africa focus, so they understand the terrain, and there's, there's a rich network that they bring to the table as well. Interestingly, in the press release you sent out for um, announcing this funding around, you said that you believe that seamless HR has the potential to be a unicorn. Um, and I admire the confidence, and you don't see that in a lot of press releases announcing investments. Um, what's behind your confidence that you that you really do have the potential to scale the business to that extent? Uh, thank you. So, uh, first of all, it's the size of the problem we're trying to solve um, and how we look at that problem. Um, so, the way we look at it is we're automating resources, the management of resources for enterprises, starting first with human resources. So we we will skirt the, the verticals. I mean, we're going to move to other verticals. So it's not just human resources we will do. We feel that, that that graph of resource management for enterprise in emerging markets is a, it's a, it's a big graph. Um, we also will move across geographies. So it's not just going to be Nigeria and Ghana or Africa alone. We believe that there are emerging market opportunities around the world. Um, and, and there's an interesting thing that, you know, most of the technology that the world uses emanates first from the U.S. or from Europe. And, and while it's easy for, you know, B2C software that is free to scale very fast globally, so Facebook, Google, these are free, you know, they're freemium systems, and it's very easy for them to scale because there's no price dichotomy between the, the West and, and the rest of the world or between developed markets and emerging markets. That's different for enterprise systems. The pricing of enterprise software in America and Europe is unaffordable in Africa and in similar emerging markets around the world. And that's probably because of cost and all of that. So we're able to build technology at African cost that actually work for emerging market needs um, and leverage, you know, the same technology that the companies in the West leverage, the same tech stock, the same cloud infrastructure to build technology that actually works for emerging markets that we can price um, affordably for emerging markets. So we feel that there is first a, a, a multiple vertical opportunity for us um, and there's also a very broad geographical opportunity for us um, on problems that are big enough to actually generate enough value to build a unicorn. And, and something that we're pretty convinced about, um, we're not 
underestimating the amount of work that needs to be done, um, but we feel that it's an achievable goal. Ahmed, co-founder at www.religioushealth.com. We are a technology company that specializes in telemedicine. We do this through our platform for both B2B, for facilities such as hospitals, clinics, and pharmacies, and B2C through our Nadia app where we offer both subscription or a pay-go option for users for non-urgent primary care consultations. With our solution, hospitals, clinics, and even pharmacies are able to serve a wider clientele remotely. While ordinary users are empowered through our technology, to cut through traffic both on the road and in the waiting rooms to consult with a primary care physician or order their medication conveniently at an affordable price. We are a team of focused and driven go-getters who are determined to reshape the primary care landscape in Africa and beyond. Our ask is $350,000 for 10% um, equity. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Disrupt Podcast, but not before a quick plug. We're working with Global Voice Group, a global provider of ICT and regtech solutions for governments and regulatory bodies to identify tech startups from across the continent to which it can provide funding and support in scaling. There's up to $300,000 available for the right startups, so if you think you're a fit, all the details are on our website. Apply now. Otherwise, we hope you enjoyed this episode, and please, as ever, remember to let all your friends and colleagues know that they can listen to the podcast on any of their favorite podcasting platforms. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. In the meantime, stay safe. Goodbye. Bye.